Welcome, welcome to Troublesome Terps, the least fit podcast you've ever heard. I think we'll help, we'll help a lot of people with that. Mr. Diney, your problem is your job. Franz Pohacker. I almost interpreted him once, which was one of the most nerve-wracking situations in my life, and then it turns out he didn't make the flight and wasn't at the conference. So a lot of <laughs> a lot of anxiety over nothing. <laughs> that's, that's a bit like going to confession for the Pope, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the last I checked, you were a human being with free will and an internet connection. Take one. Action. Welcome to Troublesome Terps, the Pros Community Choice Award nominated podcast that answers the question. Do interpreters ever stop talking? So with me today is a man whose contributions to interpreting include consecutive Glaswegian in a bingo hall and introducing the profession to deep fried Mars bars, Dr. Jonathan Downey. Thank you very much. I'm not actually eating deep fried Mars bar at the moment because I do care about my health. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very wise decision. Then today, as a very special guest, we have Evandro Magellan joining us, who is the former chief interpreter for the International Telecommunications Union, a senior UN interpreter, and now the brains behind the very first TED ad video for interpreting with now more than 360,000 views on YouTube. Welcome, Evandro. Well, thank you very much. Let me, can I ask you to do that again? I'll go in and, and ask my mother to come and, and watch this. <laughs> I think you'd love it. Really, really flattered. Thank you very much for this very generous introduction. <laughs> and also with us today is a man who puts the institution in European institutions, Alexander Drexel. Also, Alex, I was informed that there's a Lang FM podcast episode with you and Evandro. Is that right? That is absolutely correct, yes. And I'll put the link into the show notes. So if you're more interested in uh, all kinds of biographical information and, and what Evandro did before he became uh, a very successful UN interpreter and chief interpreter, you should absolutely listen to that episode. Perfect. I think we'll also link to the video in the description. So if you guys want to check that out, the link is right there. So... Today's subject, or the subject of today's podcast, I should say, is one near and dear to all of our hearts, I believe, because in a world where we are mistaken for translators, trapped in glass boxes like mimes, and made invisible in the media, it really does matter what people think of our work and how they perceive it, if they perceive it consciously at all. So maybe we could kick things off by having Evandro chime in, because you've just created this fantastic TED video, as we've mentioned, with hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. And tell us a little bit about why you decided to make such a video and, and what the response to it has been. Well, the, his, the response has been overwhelming. I mean, considering that none I've ever written got this kind of a response. 360,000 people, and it's been out for, what, maybe a month and a half, two months. So uh, we're on our way to maybe half a million people watching it in, in the next two months or so. So it's my most successful piece of writing to date, so I'm very proud of it in a way, but also very happy to see that it did indeed change the perception people have of the profession and of what we do. If you go over the, the 800 comments or so, uh, that you see on the on the YouTube channel uh, from TED ads specifically, you will see that many people have walked away from the piece with a much 
greater respect, if you will, for the profession and for interpreters. They they say things like, "Wow, I, I never I never thought it was so much work. I never realized they put so much effort into it, and so on." So I think it did a good job of you know broadening the the overall awareness about what we do. Now, the reason, I mean, how how I came about to do it or why I did it was just that I, I'm a big fan of TED. I like uh, to watch the TED Talks, and I also like to the TED Lessons particularly. I find them very interesting. So one day, I looked all over the place for anything regarding interpretation. I couldn't find it. So I decided to go online, nominate myself as an educator, and pitch an idea to them. And that's how it started. They liked it. They contacted me a few days later. We we discussed it uh, online over a few inter, uh, you know, Skype interviews. And before I knew, I was already writing the script. So it, and, and this is how it works. So what was the, the timeline? How, how long did the whole thing take, more or less? That's a good question. They tell you it takes about four months. In my case, it took about six because I was traveling a lot also. And they also had some other things that they needed to, to uh, attend to. Also, they do a very thorough job of checking every piece of information. For example, the, the, the piece opens with the 1956 uh, diplomatic reception in Moscow, where Khrushchev was supposed, you know, is quoted to have said, you know, the famous, we will bury you. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev told Western Bloc ambassadors, Muvas poharonim. His interpreter rendered that into English as, we will bury you. This statement sent shockwaves through the Western world. And in my mind, it was a phrase that he had said at the UN in New York, you know, in the wake of that same episode where he was, you know, banging his shoe on the table and so on. And I was wrong about that. So they have a team of fact checkers, as they call them, to actually check every piece of information for you. So they, they do a very good job of making sure every piece of information is out there as correctly as it could possibly be. So you mentioned that you read the comments, which I'm sure everybody knows is not something that you should do. But I think in your instance, it, re it really came out well. And I think what your video did so fantastically is really describe in a very understandable and kind of tangible way what we do. Because I think that's really what interpreters struggle with, what our profession struggles with, is that people don't really understand what we do. You know, if you say you're a translator, somehow everybody kind of has a rough understanding. But then if you say you're an interpreter, people think you're a translator and that they have a rough understanding of what you do and then they don't. So I think your video did a beautiful job really illustrating that in a very funny way. So I think, I think that was really, well, fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I must say that half of the credit should go to the designers the animators and so on, because you write the script and then they critique it. And there are many things in the script that they ask you to remove or change in such a way as to make their job of animating it easier. So um, on many occasions, I wanted to say something one way and they said, no, 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 this is too much detail. We'll take care of it in the animation. The whole alien concept, the whole story behind it, uh, how they how they pictured it. I mean, this was entirely their decision. So I never, I never thought, well, how do, you know, why don't we use an alien and this analogy and that? So they are very, very resourceful in that, in that regard. You know, the, the risk when you do something like this, it, you know, for us interpreters, is that because there's so much criticism out there and because interpreters are so opinionated, when we think about doing something like that, we immediately think about the interpreters and we start 
talking to them instead. So my, I, I, I came into it with a very firm decision not to do it for interpreters. I, I reminded myself over and over that I was talking to the public at large, to students mostly, high schoolers, people who want to have a broader understanding of what interpreting is and maybe you know, to, to a point that they get fascinated enough about it and they want to move into the profession. So that was the, the overall purpose behind it. Because if you think too much about the interpreter, then, of course, I mean, there, there will be people who think, you know, that shadowing is not uh, established, uh, you know, teaching method, and they will criticize something else and so on. And, and it's important that they understand that this is a piece for the overall public. And I, I you know, had that very clear in my mind from the get-go. One of the things that struck me about the video, especially in the, the context of, of other changes that we're seeing in the way that professionals are talking about their own work, is that it managed to show people that our job is not just a case of saying what the person said. There's actually occasions in there where you see interpreters making real-life decisions that have an impact. And I think that's part of what the, the conversation, I think, that the video is opening now in, in the public eye and even amongst interpreters is the fact that we're not these kind of language machines mm -hmm. who just turn up, plug in, say what the person said and go home. Um, I think to be able to open people up to the fact that we're making real decisions that actually have an effect. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think if we can get interpreters to understand that they're not language machines, I think that that's a huge step forward for the profession. And I think when we get people looking at you know, looking at doing jobs, understanding what it is that we do and what it is we don't do. That's going to attract far more people than this view of, you know, we, we never make any decisions, we just say what the person said. Mm. And to that end, it's interesting to note that the video opens with a mistake. Yes. You know, an occurrence where the interpreter made, quote-unquote, a mistake. Of course, uh, the interpreter in question went to his grave uh, sustained that he never made a mistake, that that was exactly the, the intended meaning and so on. But given the circumstances, given everything that was at stake, you could argue that he could have chosen his words differently. So we, it, the piece opens with a with a with an episode, or, you know, an example of where things go wrong, and still it shows that fine, this is a best effort kind of thing. We'll try to communicate. We'll try to get it across, no matter what. So, and in, in retrospect, because I felt very uncomfortable opening with that mistake episode. And uh, the TED-Ed people insisted on that because they said this will create the, the right hook. And it did. So I have to, to, to acknowledge that. What I really like is, is the fact that finally we have something good about interpreters on, on YouTube. Because I guess <laughs> if you just search for interpreter on YouTube, you find all kinds of bloopers and, you know, strange, strange things like the guy who interpreted, and I'm using air quotes here, at the uh, Nelson Mandela uh, ceremony and that kind of stuff or, you know, comedy clips and, and so on and so forth. So <laughs> I, I think it's, it's very good to have something uh, up there on YouTube that is that is really right that represents the profession correctly and uh, you know just just uh, puts out the facts as it were. Yeah, and I and I hope more videos will come in the wake of of that one. So because now it's a subject that is out there already in, on TED-Ed, so it's easier for anybody, any of you now, to pitch um, a subsequent idea to them and say, hey, by the way. You know, as a follow-up to that video and so on, maybe perhaps you could talk about this and another aspect like that and so on, which is what I'm trying uh, to do now. I mean, they just cleared a second episode. It is not specifically about interpreting. It talks about the circumnavigation of the world, the, the Magellan trip. 
But I wanted to, again, talk about it from the point of view of the, the very first man who actually went full circle, who, which was not Magellan, but rather his interpreter, a slave that he acquired on a first trip to Malacca, brought him to Spain and Portugal. And by the time they reached the Spice Islands again, that guy was back home. Now, because it's sort of controversial and so on, Ted doesn't really want to go there. So they, they now rely on me to write a, a good enough script that will emphasize some of those aspects. But what they want me now is to tell the story of uh, the journey, you know, the expedition, which limits me in, in a certain way, but still gives me the possibility of, you know, if, I'm, if I can do it wisely enough, to talk about one specific aspect of that journey, which is the language aspect, getting you know relying on someone who is probably from that part of the world, and you know betting that once we're back there, that guy will be able to communicate somehow with whomever it is that we find, and that worked. Not only that, they also um, because of you know a number of circumstances, when when Magellan eventually died and, and the interpreter uh, chose not to continue the trip. Uh, the person, the, the interpreter, the ad hoc interpreter, who made it possible for them to get out of that maze and reach Spain back, was someone who had spent hours and hours on the ship with a slave, putting together a glossary and a dictionary. So that was what eventually saved everybody's fate. Well, one of the things that I've noticed is that in most professions, um, especially if you come across, say, scientists or you come across teachers or nurses or doctors, there are people who are held up in the profession as these are professional heroes who, you know, they, they may be 200 years old, but, you know, people know about Florence Nightingale, people know about heroes of other professions. What we don't have in interpreting, really, that we've talked to the world about is the, the mentality of here are people who have really made such a massive difference to the way we interpret. You know, um, I was reading recently about one of the interpreters at the Nuremberg War Trials was himself a German Jew. When you understand the background that some of the first professional interpreters came from, when you understand the impact that interpreters have had in things like the the opening up of the the um, the west of the USA was reliant on interpreters, you, there's a real case that we should be making that the world as we know it now has been and is reliant on the work of interpreters to function. And if every other profession is able to, to say the same thing, it's about time that interpreters made ex that, exact came, that exact same case too. Absolutely. And I think you can't really point to any historic episode, you know, an episode of historic proportions, where an interpreter uh, was not there. I mean, in the age of discoveries um, all over the place and so on, and if you extrapolate from there, even the Voyager, the, the, the space probes, who are now beyond the solar system and God knows where, they carry a lot of information about our planet, about our galaxy, and so on, coded in all different languages of the world, in different uh, schematic uh, arrangements, and so on. Let's suppose that this thing you know, drops, uh, falls on, on an asteroid or, or, I don't know, a planet or whatever. If uh, a given day somebody breaks that code, in a way, that will be an alien interpreter. I mean, whoever does it will be an interpreter. I mean, we'll, we'll have to credit that person uh, for that discovery somehow. So, I mean, it, it takes uh, this kind of, of genius, if you will. And very few professions, yes, I agree with you, can claim that, yeah. But I think the, the interesting question is why 
the professions of interpreter and translator are misrepresented or why people have such strange ideas about those professions or why people think, well, anybody who spent two weeks in Spain can do that. And I, and I, I really wonder where that comes from. Is I, I mean, one reason certainly is that, of course, the media really enjoy uh, talking about interpreter mistakes, you know, especially when it's high stakes, when it's uh, very visible, very public. But I mean, that, that can't be all. You guys know that I'm not one for controversy. <laughs> I never say anything controversial. But from my studies, one of the things that I discovered during the PhD, which shocked me, is that there have been studies of what interpreters have said to the public. And all of the studies that have done this have discovered that the impression that interpreters have voluntarily given to the public is that we are language machines, basically. Um, and that we just say what the speaker said and that we don't really make any decisions. We're still saying what the speaker said, but just in a different way. And there's a, a suggestion, certainly in, in my PhD thesis, and I've seen it in other work as well, that if you give people the impression that you're a language machine, you tend to create an environment where people say, well, you're replaceable. If, on the other hand, like many other professions, you start talking up the difficulty of what you do, you talk up the humanity of what you do, you talk up the difficult decision-making and the fact that uh, for interpreting to work, we need the cooperation of the speakers and the audience, otherwise it falls over, then suddenly respect comes. And I wonder whether, in some senses, without meaning to, in all of our efforts to appear professional and trustworthy and, and so on, we've given people a false impression of the nature of our work. And it's why Iwandro's video is so powerful, because it directs some of the false impressions that have gone out, even from professionals who have been trying their hardest to do a good job of representing the profession. But we needed something like that to correct this view that we are language machines. Good point, yeah. Yeah, I, t I tend to agree, uh, Jonathan. And in most of my writing, I tried to revisit some of those points. But I also look at it from a different angle, which is many interpreters, especially when I was starting starting out, and I was fascinated by the profession, and I would approach a, a professional interpreter and so on, they very often would dismiss me. And when I asked me, you know, how is this possible? How do you do it? And so on. They didn't quite provide any explanation, rather than saying that, well, you know, it's a gift, and I don't know how I do it. I just do. It's not everyone, but some of us can do it. And so one, you know, they, they perpetuated that idea that this is a gift. This is something that is quite closed and nobody can, can crack this nut open, maybe for fear of being exposed and maybe for fear of eventually revealing that this is a trainable uh, skill like any other. So for many, many years, I guess, that, that contributed to that notion of interpreting being, you know, a very exclusive club, a very closed profession, and, and something that you have to be born into. So, Jonathan and and uh, Alex, do you think this this video could also be helpful in your relations with uh, clients, potential clients, existing clients? Uh, do you think you could point them to that video? Uh, probably more useful for for new clients or, or future clients. Do you think that could be something that you could use for marketing as well? 
I think so, um, because, well, it depends. I think it's mostly very useful for, for new clients because clients who are re repeat clients, they've already worked with you. So hopefully you will have given them some sort of an understanding as to, as to what's going on. But I think for new clients, it gives them a very quick and easy way into our profession to understand what's going on. Um, I don't know how I would get them to, to watch the video because, you know, oftentimes you're struggling to have your clients read a lengthy email. So I don't know if <laughs> if I would get them to watch a YouTube video. Of course, I'm going to try because I think it's great. But I think every single tool in the toolbox can help. So in, in Germany over here, in the German Association of Conference Interpreters, we have these little um, postcards which we can hand out, which is basically a little infograph diagram sort of thing, which explains different aspects of conference interpreting. And it's very easy. It's very cool. It's kind of like a cartoon style, relatively similar to, to what the video looks like. And it's just a fun, kind of playful way to give clients a quick overview of, of what we do and of how they can help. So one of the cards is actually tips for speakers. So I think that's very handy. And I think all of those all of those elements, all of those tools that we have, if we can combine them and we can use them, I think that's going to improve how our clients perceive us and also how we can communicate with our clients because it's kind of, I don't want to say we can educate them, but I think we can help them further their understanding. I, I think for me, the, the marketing use of it is is helpful, although I think at the same time, we need to further look at tools to talk to clients about the value that interpreting has for them, the fact that they really shouldn't see interpreting as a cost item, they should see it as an investment item because if we do our job properly, the returns will be far greater than they spend on us. Um, that's a, a whole an additional narrative I think we need to be talking to them about. But I think what's more exciting for me is the potential to take this video into secondary schools, even into primary schools, um, homeschool people, and to show the next generation of it, of possible interpreters, this is how exciting our career is. Um, we've not been very good, certainly uh, before undergraduate level university, at selling the profession to people who could come into it. And I think, I watched the video and I thought, you know, there are so many teenagers who would see that and go, wow, I want to be one of them. And I don't know about you, the, the, the way that I fell in love with interpreting is I saw people actually interpreting on stage and within five minutes of seeing what they were doing, decided that's the job I want to do. Um, it's, it seems to be one of these jobs that until you see it working, you don't even know it exists. And I think, yeah, it's going to be a good client awareness thing. But I think for it to work, we need to start changing our narrative around interpreting. And I think that is a, a massive challenge in where we need interpreter education um, to go alongside what we would call client education, which is a misnomer anyway. Jonathan, that's interesting. Again, if you go over the, the comments, and I did, I, I answered to all of the respectful comments that were out there. <laughs> and of course, I mean, if it was just a troll, I would ignore it. But if you go over the comments, it's very interesting because you do get a number of people saying, wow, this is so interesting, my dream job. I didn't know this was so exciting and so on. And several of them actually reached out to me. I'm indeed mentoring a few, two or three, just trying to you know steer them in the right direction. But also you see people saying things like, hell, I'm happy this is not me. Wow, this is so stressful. Thank God I don't have to do that job. 
You see? So, again, it, it gives that kind of thrill to those who already have a seed somewhere there. They love the language aspect of it or whatever. But you get both reactions. It's very interesting. That reminds me of, um, I was at a, a, a week seminar in, in Italy, and it was church interpreters and Bible translators together. And we wanted the Bible translators to understand what it is that interpreters do, so we just gave them some very basic interpreter training exercises, the kind of things that most universities do on the first day. We used shadowing, you know, as well. And I, it surprised me that you had highly experienced Bible translators, some of whom had learned multiple languages, one of whom had become an expert in taking written texts and work, working with people to turn, turn them into dances and drum songs and whatever. And the, the number one comment back from just doing basic, not even bilingual, but monolingual exercises was, I'm glad I'm a translator, that's really difficult. And I thought, after you've done interpreting for a while, you, you get stunned when people say that's a really difficult job because you say, it's so fun I forget sometimes. Yeah, I get that a lot too. <laughs> we have to realize that there are several ways to teach interpreting. There are several ways to learn interpreting. There are several routes into the profession. And I think that the more we get used to the fact that um, interpreting is such a varied beast... And what works for some people may not work for others. There are some things that seem to work across the board. Um, but there are some tools that some people use more effectively than others. And I think we, we just have to get used to the variety of our job. And, and maybe someone should do a TED-Ed video on the sheer variety of good interpreters can work. Just to show people that you don't have to be in a pristine conference hall in Geneva. You could be in my case, in a muddy field outside of an ex-industrial town in the west of Scotland, or you could have someone else in a hospital or in, or, or wherever. Um, the sheer variety, I think, makes interpreting amazing in itself. You know, yet you don't lack the, the training wills, huh? Yes. You know what I'm talking about, right? The article you wrote about, about not you know, don't try this at home, just don't go into a booth and let's see how it works. So if you could elaborate on that a little bit. I, the the training wheels article is because for the first time ever I, I've um, disagreed with one of the people who I, I lean on for marketing advice, um, and I, I might elaborate on that a little bit and kind of talk about the fact that sometimes we blame the tools for what is the fault of the people, um, and I think that that that's a, a big big issue. So I hear people saying things like, you know, they didn't train me in marketing skills at university, and it's like, well. Uh, it's not saying that we shouldn't teach skills at university, but the, the the more into my career I go, the more I realize that I have to take responsibility for my own lack of knowledge in places. Um, and I think if universities can teach anything, and if we could teach interpreters anything, it would be take responsibility for your own career as early as possible. And if things are going wrong, don't run away, find a way to fix it. It's what we do in the booth every day. If you're having a tough shift, you don't, you know, slam the microphone down and run out the booth and never come back. You you find a way to fix it. So we, we've talked a little bit about about what can be done to to improve, I, I guess, the reputation of our of our profession and its its individual work for each and every one of us. I think um, Alexander talked a little bit about what professional associations are doing. Um, can the associations maybe do more? Can they do other things? Are they doing enough? What What's your take on that? I think 
they're trying. I think they're really trying, which is not necessarily a satisfactory answer. But um, I think a good example is uh, this really nice poster initiative that the Bavarian chapter of the Federal Association of Interpreters and Translators did here in in uh, Germany, in Bavaria. They have these really well-designed posters, one showing an interpreter, um, a lady in, I believe, the European Union or, or United Nations Assembly Hall, and one showing a translator sitting at home on the computer with dictionaries. You know, it's a little cliche, but it really gets the point across. It really gets the message across. And they've plastered those posters around big cities in Bavaria. And I think it's it's obviously very costly, which you can't do that all the time. But I think that kind of pushes us into the consciousness of the general public because let's face it if you're not attending international conferences or congresses if you're not sitting in on these european works councils if you're not a delegate at the european union or the united nations chances are you will probably have rarely ever heard of us or what we do so i think a big a big chance but also a big challenge is how we get into the public consciousness because most people know you know translators and i think uh, Evandro and Jonathan, you guys were talking about how varied our field is, and it's not just the pristine halls of conference interpreting, but I think that's part of the challenge because with translation, and I'm probably going to get crucified for this, but translation is kind of what it is. You know, you, there's always some form of typing on a computer and you're relaying one text. If, into another language. With interpreting, there's you're sitting at a hospital bed, you're delivering, uh, you know, devastating diagnosis, but then also you're enabling million dollar, million dollar business deals and, uh, conferences, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of London. So there's all these various aspects, which I think make it very hard to communicate what it is that we do exactly. And I think that's where we're all struggling with. And I think that's kind of what the professional associations try to do. But again, it's very difficult to, to communicate clearly and effectively the individual facets of interpreting without losing focus and losing the interest of the public because it gets too complicated and muddled, but also doing the job justice. So I think that's a very interesting field of tension that we're in here. Um, Evandro, I wanted to uh, come back to one aspect of interpreting, which is interpreting in, in the uh, institutions. And I was wondering if uh, maybe at the ITU or in, in the UN system in general, uh, whether you have done any awareness raising campaigns um, for your clients, i.e. For the, for the delegates, for the people you work for. Have you done any awareness raising for them, uh, trying to show the, the value of interpreting and, and the value of uh, multilingualism in general? I do a lot of selling uh, internally, not to delegates, but to staff. Because uh, my take on it is that if I can convince my colleagues about why it is that we have certain rules and why they are important and tell them why, you know, how it is that we work, the shifts and the, and the rotation and the takes that, you know, the turns that we take, if I can make them aware of that, then they will be more respectful, you know, time-wise and with all the procedures and so on, and they will communicate that effectively to the delegates. So every semester I hold at least one public session where everybody in ITU is invited, anyone in any way connected to event management, and we go for a two-hour presentation 
which used to be pretty much the video that I eventually uh, uh, posted on YouTube. The, the other one, the one um, Alex just mentioned today on, on LinkedIn, and by the way, thank you. And it's that, it's that presentation telling them exactly the mechanics and all the, the YAIC rules that pertain to, to the UN. And that has a very interesting ripple effect. Every time we do it, the number of complaints and the number of, of overruns and so on tend to, to diminish. Yeah, we have a similar initiative, actually, in the, in the commission. I have a very, uh, very good, very active Spanish colleague who gives um, actual real workshops to um, other colleagues from, from the commission. So those, um, so similar to what you said, those who organize conferences, those who need interpreting for their meetings or for their conferences. And what he does as well is he puts them into the booth and he lets them interpret. And he also shows them uh, the difference between a good speaker and a bad speaker. So he has two scenarios, one where he really makes an effort of trying to communicate, of uh, enunciating properly and so on and so forth. And the other scenarios where he just rambles on without uh, sense and purpose and just goes very quickly and then makes people realize what a huge difference that can make. And, and, and that's always very revealing. But of course, the, the downside is that you can only reach so many people by doing that, especially in these huge institutions. It, it's difficult to have really a, a, a big reach. Um, and I think it's, it's similar on the private market where you don't really know who your customer is or could be. Um, I think it's very difficult to, to really address the right people necessarily. But you know, that person will leave the booth talking to several others. So the, the experience is really impactful. Yeah. So that would be a ripple effect uh, there as well. I, th I think that's the interesting thing is that with tools like the, the TED Ed video, which is going to make such a big difference if we use it well, uh, but also with uh, one of the, the most useful tools that I found is I decided that I wanted to get into my client's world. Um, especially my potential clients. I'm trying to get, to talk to the, the big event management agencies and even the smaller ones as well. And so I've started going to their trade shows and the, the last time uh, I, I'd been there for about five minutes and I got talking to this lady from a large event management agency who found, who as soon as she found out I spoke French, switched the entire conversation into French. And what made her eyes open was the fact that um, I was there gaining an understanding of what it is they do, the pressures that they're under, and what makes their clients come back to them. So rather than saying, you know, here's a list of um, rules and regulations using interpreting that you have to follow, the conversation was more about, okay, let's hear what your clients want from you. Um, and it was little things like she was saying, you know, we really wish that we could get get to the point where we have the same interpreting team every time because then they would know how we work, we would know how they work, and we'd be confident with what they're delivering. And I thought little things like that. We don't always need to go into the with the clients and you know what wallop them over the head with the manual for an ISO booth, but we can sit there and go, okay, if your if, if your meeting is going to be effective, let's have a discussion about what that means. Um, and that that gets them on side a whole lot quicker because you're trying to get make their agenda work rather than yours. Um, and you learn a lot more about what's going on in people's heads when they're trying to listen to us or trying to book us. Um, and funnily enough, that, that particular agency have put me on their preferred supplier list. So the, the doors open when you ask the questions um, and when you, you think, okay, 
are there points where we need to be flexible and say, okay, uh, I, I know we would normally do it this way, but actually in, in your setting, maybe this other way is, is slightly better, is slightly more effective. Um, because the rules don't necessarily work for every single client for every single event. I know that's controversial, but we have to think about what's going to work for the client rather than what makes us comfortable. That's a very good point. You know, when I was in, again, in a different life where I've had my my translation agency for 17 years in Brazil, and I was the chief linguist uh, there, I, again, this goes back maybe at least 10 years. I mean, the very end uh, of that. Um, I was in the business of sending, whenever we have, whenever we had like, a, a say, a medical congress and so on, I would go ahead and send you know, systematically to every speaker that was lined up to speak, one uh, a very summarized version of uh, a text that you that you can also find out there that I wrote on LinkedIn. You know, tips on how to make your presentation more interpreter friendly. But from that specific point of view, how to use interpreters to your advantage? These are you know little things that you can do which will actually increase your impact. It's not to make my life easier. It's to actually make your impact bigger. So in these, I'm a big fan of information. I think our job is to get as much information out there as possible in many different ways. The video, for example, that we've been discussing, I don't know anybody in ITO who doesn't know it because I've sent it to everyone. I've posted it everywhere in the intranet, on the extranets, and so on. Everybody pretty much has at least had a chance to watch the video. But the information is out there. Do you remember, I'm sure you're familiar with a video called Smart Speaking from Calliope Interpreters. Have you seen that? Those are very good videos. I've, I've seen them and I'll, I'll put them in the show notes um, as well because also the animation is very well done and, and it's, you know, it's, it's fun. Yeah, it's not so serious. The animation is fun. It's very interesting. It tells people exactly yeah, how to relate to, to interpreters and so on. So maybe just throwing it out there as, as a general point of discussion, but I wonder how, because there are a lot of us out there, <laughs> if you think about it, a lot, a lot of interpreters globally, um, and if every, I don't know, tenth one of us just did something along the lines of, of your video, Evandro, I think we could really start shifting the, the, the conversation or raise more awareness about you know how we can help, what we can do, what can't we do. And I just wonder how we can kind of energize the the crowd to to get moving. I think the associations could do more. They should start talking more to people out there and not just to interpreters. What we see within the associations is that they cater too much to their members. And with good reason, I understand that. But it's about time we talk to people out there, people who are beyond the confines of our profession. If we really want to raise awareness, we can't just be talking to interpreters and talking to one another. Right? Yeah, I was thinking about something similar because there's this uh, annual day of uh, Saint Jerome, who's the patron saint of translators and, I guess, by extension, interpreters <laughs> as well. And and there were there have always been you know awareness raising events, but I had the impression as well that they're very often uh, intentionally or unintentionally more geared towards the profession and not towards the public. So that's something we can work on, absolutely. I, I think we need our own patron saint of interpreting. Um, we need to find someone who is related to interpreting. Um, I'm, it's funnily enough, I'm, academics are getting very good at it. And that is 
uh, understanding that the outside world does not owe us anything. And so if we want people to be interested in what we're doing. We're the ones who have to go out and do it. And, and thinking of one thing that we wish people knew. Uh, I, I'm loving the, the fact that so many interpreters now are writing about uh, effective speaking or, or working with interpreters. But I was talking to a, an events manager recently and I just threw out an idea. I said, well, I've been writing content for um, event management agencies on my blog every so often. And, and, and so what I, I suggested, and I said, would it be worthwhile for me to collect all the advice I've already got online, add some new stuff and just create a free small ebook for event management agencies on effectively searching for hiring, managing and working with interpreters. And the response was, yes, and can I have the first copy? But most of the advice that I'm giving, most, if you read my blog, if you read LinkedIn Pulse, if you read the advice that any of us are giving, what we're saying are the kind of things that we learn within the first week of training. None of it is complicated, none of it is hard to understand, none of it needs any sort of theoretical background. But the problem is, is that the people who are most aware of it are the people who don't need it. Uh, and I think if we all thought, you know, the, the world could have a hundred ebooks on how to work with interpreters, because it's going to be different in every country and every situation, there are going to be tweaks. Um, there's a, a, a book out that, that I saw called um, Translation Getting It Right. Well, there's a, a version called Interpreting Getting It Right, but I think we need more of that kind of thing that doesn't take a lot of effort. You could be funny, you could be pedantic, however you want to be, but to just make the effort to say something, and I would say on the other side of things, I would like us to have, um, for one day a year, that all interpreters who are members of an association or part of an institution commit that for one day a year, they will refuse to say anything negative about clients on social media, just for one day a year, and see how it affects how people see our profession. Agreed, in full. And you know another idea? Anybody, any interpreter with a website should dedicate at least one page to raising awareness, to explaining a little bit of what interpreting is and what we do and how we do it. Instead of just saying, hey, pick me, pick me, I'm, I'm, I've interpreted for Obama, I've interpreted for this and that, showing pictures and this and that, fine. This is the marketing side of it, great, you need that. But take advantage of your website also to educate the public. Very good. Okay, can I, I just say that I'm bouncing around like an excited toddler on my chair because this is exactly the thing that I've been dreaming that people would say, uh, and I think it doesn't take a lot. It, it, not, not everyone has to write a TED-Ed video, not everyone has to go and speak to... UN experts, but I, I love this idea of you know one page on your website, one blog post, um, one poster, just the really really simple things. And I think all of our complaints about wages, about conditions, they would all disappear if we would all work together to raise awareness. Not just for what you know, I'm a conference interpreter. It's great for me to raise awareness of what I do, but. Uh, it's even better if I talk to someone who's a, a medical interpreter and start talking up the amazing things that they do as well and show people that we're actually, okay, we, we do different things in different places, but we are one profession and we're all equally skilled and equally important. Yeah, and it doesn't take much. And again, as I said, I mean, if you don't feel like even writing a page on your own, just you know, list a, a bunch of links to other people's stuff out there, you know, to... Jonathan's book, 
to the video out there, to any any other sort of resource that does the job for you. That's excellent. Uh, and I think maybe that's a good point uh, to wrap up this uh, discussion. There are at least a few points that I would I, I would take away. Um, for example, that in our communication, we don't throw around the rules and the manuals and, and the standards and, and, and all that uh, stuff so much, but that we focus more on the customer, on the client, so that we demonstrate the value that we can deliver and that we then, of course, also deliver uh, that, that value, that we work for our customers, that we show them what we can do and, and what the advantage is of working with um, interpreters. Um, and, and one point, uh, just one point, is uh, communicating well, because that's often uh, portrayed as something, yeah, well, we have to speak properly because the interpreters want us to. No, actually, you have to speak properly because you want to communicate well, because you want your event to be successful, your conference, your meeting, whatever it is. So that's just a key factor to a successful event in and of itself. It's not something that people have to do for the interpreters. And I think if, if we can get our communication to focus more on that, focus more on the, on the client, I think that's already um, a big step ahead. So um, we can we can look for, for names like Chris Durbin, who does a lot of that for translation, than people like Tess Witte, who does an excellent podcast on marketing, or the work of Marta Stelmasak or Valeria Aliperta on marketing and branding. I think those are those are all points that we can use um, and that we can build on, and that we should ideally, as as you have said, build on together. I would like to thank first of all our guest for today, um, Evandro. My pleasure, as usual. Thanks for being uh, on the podcast, and uh, maybe we can have you back someday. Thank you as well to uh, Alexander Gansmeyer in Munich. Thank you to Jonathan Downey in Scotland. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the following episodes. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to us, why not give us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast? That would be much appreciated. And I believe you can still vote uh, in the Pros Community Awards. So that's um, another way of showing your appreciation for our podcast. Thanks uh, for listening and talk to you next time. Bye-bye. You had a good time there, right, Jonathan? That was incredible. Evandra, I think you really made Jonathan's week by saying what you said. <laughs> yeah. That's it, I guess. Thank you.